From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today on the program, we're talking to a researcher who believes some insects might actually benefit from pesticides. Next, we'll chat with a string theorist who is uncoupling ideas about the construction of the universe faster than you can say nickel and involution. And then, of course, we'll bring them together to try to build some connections between two very different areas of research. It's the community ecologist and the mathematical physicist coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week on this program, I get to chat with researchers who are adding to the human collection of knowledge in sometimes small ways and sometimes really pretty big ways. And I get to help them talk to you about what they do. And ahead of that, I sort of take a crash course in the subject matter of their recent research. Enough, I hope, so that I can ask them the sorts of questions that allow them to explain what they do in ways that we can all understand. As a result, I like to say that I know a little bit about a lot, a little bit about population genetics, a little bit about aerospace engineering, a little bit about anthropology and psychology and political science. Some of these areas are easier for me to grasp, and some at first seem really complicated, but here is what I've found. Even something that seems impossibly complicated at first can be made more accessible when people who care about those subjects make a commitment to sharing their knowledge. I think we're going to have some opportunities to do that once again on today's program. Joining me in the studio is Ed Hamill. He is the principal investigator at the Spatial Community Ecology Laboratory at Utah State University and the author of numerous papers that reveal the ways in which organisms are impacted as dynamic communities by our ever-changing world. Ed, welcome to Undisciplined. Thanks, Matt. And also with us in studio and also from Utah State University is Andreas Malmendier. He has been on a tear lately with seven papers published in areas ranging from six-line configurations to Nikulin involutions in string theory, and we're excited to have him with us today. Hi, Andreas. Hi, great to be here. First up today, let's talk about insects and mosquitoes are the subject of our first guest work. It turns out that some of those little buggers are very amused by our attempts to wipe them out. Ed Hamill, before we get to the key finding of your recent study, kind of the surprise, the twist, I'd like you to set this up for me. You didn't intentionally go looking for tough insects, right? You were looking at aquatic communities more broadly, and in particular, you wanted to know how pesticides impact those communities. Is that right? And what brought you to that question? Yeah, so the sort of the story of how we got there is a little bit convoluted. So we've done a whole bunch of work in Costa Rica. We use these very specialized ecosystems where inside these plants that grow on other plants called bromeliads, there's a small pocket of water, and inside that water holds a very unique community. Mosquitoes, other small insect larvae, and a little tiny a baby damselfly larvae as well. One thing we'd noticed that always really bugged us is if we were working in what we call pristine locations, like beautiful national parks, then we would hardly ever get any mosquito bites. However, when we were doing some work in plantations, we would get absolutely bitten to death by mosquitoes. We got to thinking, why on earth are we getting bitten to all get out when we're in plantations and we're not getting bitten in what you would consider a place that should, in theory, have a lot more insects because it's a pristine area? So I know the subject matter of your study, so I know the answer is, is, is pesticides, but was that what came to you first? Um, that wasn't what initially came to us. We wanted to know, are there some physical characteristics? Is there something physically different in these ecosystems that uh, is causing this increase in mosquitoes? 
I'd done a whole bunch of work years previous basically showing that there's a predator that lives inside these bromeliad ecosystems, a small damselfly, and if that damselfly gets into these ecosystems, it absolutely destroys mosquitoes. So we really like this fly. This- we love damselflies. <laughs> okay, so we love these things, but as it turns out, it's not the damselfly. How'd you figure that out? So if the damselflies are present... So we started looking at the actual composition of the ecosystems inside plantations and pristine communities. And what we noticed was inside a plantation, there was just no damselflies. They just weren't present at all. So at that point, we started to think, okay, what on earth is going on? Something's happening here. We did something called a a bioassay, where you take the same organism from different areas, different locations, and you expose them to some uh, threat, basically. And the threat we chose was pesticides. In agricultural plantations, the one thing they have is pesticides. They don't have this in pristine locations. So what we did is we took a whole bunch of mosquitoes, we took them out of these bromeliads from plantations and inside uh, pristine ecosystems, and we exposed them to different levels of pesticide. What we found out was that mosquitoes that live inside plantations had evolved pretty staggering resistance to the threat of pesticides. If you took an organism of the same age, same species, and you exposed it to pesticides, one from plantations could withstand a dose up to 10 times stronger than one from a pristine location. Ten, ten, times. ten times. That is stronger. not a small effect. That is a... We were at, when we found it in the it was it was the first, one of those wonderful experiments where you we were literally sitting in a dilapidated shack in Costa Rica watching these mosquitoes die or in some cases not die and we honestly thought we'd made a mistake. We were sitting there, we double checked everything, we actually redid the experiment twice because we were just like there is no way a mosquito can survive in the sort of pesticides you could smell the pesticide coming off the tests and these things some cases they weren't happy but they were still kicking 24 hours later they're still going so i mean like mosquitoes are really pretty short-lived organisms so i mean i gather like we're talking about thousands upon thousands maybe tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of generations that have ex- been exposed to this right that's i i suppose that's a lot of time to develop a, a mutation that would make them less susceptible to that adjutant yeah so one of the other issues that we found was these damselflies that don't ki- that kill mosquitoes they showed no resistance we could not find they're them anywhere gone. they're just gone completely gone and we started thinking about okay why is it that the resistance in mosquitoes is so strong and has developed, but it hasn't developed in damselflies. And the explanation that we came up with was the generation of a mosquito in that ecosystem is between 10 days and two weeks. So they go from egg, swimming around in the water, hatching, biting someone, laying the eggs. They can do all that in two weeks. Conversely, the damselfly, its generation time is an entire year, 52 weeks minimum, sometimes 18 months. So what's happening is you've got this system where the prey species, its generation time is so fast. This gives it many, many more opportunities to evolve a resistance. You compare that to a predator whose generation time is super long, it just can't evolve fast enough in order to keep up with this novel threat that we're placing on the ecosystem. So you have this species that has kind of this superpower by virtue of the fact that it has very short generation times to evolve quickly or what we would see as quickly in response to this threat. What does that do to the community, to the community ecology? So what's kind of crazy is the mosquitoes that are present inside these ecosystems, they can live off pretty much anything. What has happened though in these plantation systems is we found that what originally, if you go to a pristine location, the community is very diverse. You've got 30, 40, sometimes ending up to 50 species. In the plantations, 
you were getting maybe three to five species. And in terms of number of individuals and in total biomass, mosquitoes had massively become the dominant member of that community. So in, in essence, sort of what's happened is we've, as people, modified the landscape and essentially created a new type of ecosystem. And this ecosystem is one that's dominated by a novel threat, which is this presence of pesticides. There's been one species that's been able to evolve and overcome this threat. It's therefore invaded this novel ecosystem. It now has no predators, so it can blossom and rise up to huge population levels. And also, it can outcompete every other species because it has this genetic resistance and it's able to overcome the sort of dominant pressure in the system. And this ecosystem is now a nightmare for researchers. Yeah, nightmares. And we like, the awful thing is, and you can speak to some of my students about this, you are not allowed to wear mosquito repellent. Because if you wear mosquito repellent, anything you touch instantly starts repelling mosquitoes, which then interferes with the whole process. So as a result, my poor students got absolutely devoured, as I did myself as well. But we were able to sort of uncover this process. So I'm fascinated by what this might say about unintended consequences. When we introduce a change agent into an ecological community, we might have an idea about what that initial action is going to be, but the tertiary effects are hard to predict. Yeah, the the issue is that whenever we as people do something to an ecosystem, we often say, well, it'll impact that particular species, so we focus on what's going to happen with that species. But species in, in the natural world, they don't exist in isolation. When people do tests on uh, novel pollutants, pesticides in particular, they often run these bioassays in labs, and they say, okay, well, this is how much pesticide it takes to kill a particular insect, and this is their resistance. What they don't do is then investigate the consequences in a community situation. So, all right, yes, Damselflies get killed by pesticides and that's fine. That doesn't tell you anything about how those lack of damselflies will then impact mosquito populations. So you would not ever be able to find out from single species experiments that adding in pesticides would actually increase mosquito populations. So although they're having trouble overcoming this new threat, what you've done is removed a much bigger threat. And that's the sort of thing that can only be uncovered when you start putting these things in a community context. This is uh, ripples creating ripples. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's Ed Hamill. His paper with Jennifer Weathered is called Adaptation to Agricultural Pesticides May Allow Mosquitoes to Avoid Predators and Colonize Novel Systems. And it was published in the journal Ecologia in June. Ed, can you stick around for a little bit as I chat with our next guest? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Today, we're talking about string theory and we're not for a moment going to pretend that this isn't complicated. But just because something is complicated doesn't mean it's not worth talking about, especially when you can find somebody passionate to talk about it. Andreas Malmandier, I want to get to some of your recent research findings momentarily, but first let's string some things together. Trying to understand string theory is a little like string theory itself. You think you're looking at a line and then you realize it's not a line, it's actually a multidimensional string, and then you realize the string is actually made up of individual threads that are all multidimensional too. But get this, they're also all vibrating all the time and those vibrations make shape and we can go on and on and on. Nobody in science thinks they're ever going to get to the bottom of things, but the bottomlessness of string theory is so vast that I wonder if sometimes you find yourself struggling to even know what you're searching for and reaching for. Yeah, I think the amazing thing when you do string theory is you all of a sudden discover relation between fields that you never thought were 
related at all. And I think that's the real value in doing mathematical physics and string theory in particular. It has really predicted connections between different fields of mathematics that nobody believed to be true. And then all of a sudden, driven by intuition from mathematical physics, we had this idea, hey, those two things should be related. And despite us mathematicians insisting that this couldn't be true, it actually turned out to be true. So that's really amazing. You've spent a lot of time thinking about string dualities. It, it used to be that physicists had several variants of string theory, and each was sort of a candidate theory. And it was thought that one, if we kept working at it and kept working at it, could turn out to be a master theory. But then about, what, like a quarter century ago, and I think you were just alluding to this, physicists started realizing that these five main candidate theories they all looked competitive from one perspective, but then when you looked at them a different way, they started being highly complementary. And part of your work is bringing together these theories in novel ways, like an interdimensional jigsaw puzzle. That's right. Go back to the time when Newton described the gravity. What he had to do is first come up with a mathematical theory that I torture my students with. It's called calculus. But at the time, calculus unified math in a fantastic way. There were people who had been thinking about conic sections, circles, ellipses, parabolas, and all of that came together in a fantastic uh, matter when, when Newton really digged into calculus. And the same was happening here. So originally, string theory we thought as a grand unifying theory, a physical theory that at last would explain all fundamental interactions in nature. And then just as you pointed out, during the what we call first string revolution, it was discovered, hey, there are all those different string theories, not just one. And first, at first, people were a little, you know, depressed about <laughs> this failure. But then they realized, well, all those theories, and this is sometimes referred to as the second string revolution, are related by dualities. What's a duality? Well, a duality simply means that maybe you have two different string theories, but they are maybe the same in disguise or partially the same in disguise. Meaning if I maybe relabel variables or do something crazy, take some limits in one theory, I end up in the other theory. And so in a way you can understand all those string theories as limits of one mother's theory, which is called M-theory. And even if people don't know what it is necessarily. A lot of people, I think, have heard of M-theory. That's the theory in physics that unifies all of these formerly disconnected versions of string right. theory. They've called this the mother theory. It exists in 11 dimensions. But you've recently proposed a new model that applies to F-theory, which some people are calling the father theory. This exists in 12 dimensions. That's right. So they are all different models. And I think the one thing which is really fantastic in string theory is what you consider first maybe a big impurity or mistake of the theory, those extra dimensions turn out to be really the holy grail of thinking in an innovative way about mathematics. 
I want this in my field. I want I want to be able to make mistakes and then say like, no, actually, I've brought it all together. <laughs> That's right. So I mean, people discovered that for string theory to be well defined, you have to have those extra dimensions. So those extra dimensions have to have to have very special properties. What I'm most interested in is spaces which have those extra properties. It's called Calabiao manifolds, and they essentially exist in every even dimension. And I am particularly focused on Calabiao manifolds in four real dimensions. As you alluded to, they are very important to F-theory. And to build such an F-theory, you need one of those Calabial manifolds in four dimensions, which are called K3 surfaces. And so you're looking for these connections that help build the theory into a stronger central idea. Exactly. So there are now those dualities between string theories. So as we said, F-theory is one of those. You need a K3 surface to build. Then there's another one, which is called heterotic string theory. And you need other data to build such a theory. But now, if you really believe in string theory, you say, hey, for this K3 surface you used to build F-theory, if you follow this crazy proposed string theory, you should end up with a heterotic string theory and a geometry there. So all of a sudden you are predicting a relation between a K3 surface and whatever is needed on the heterotic side. And all of a sudden, you see a connection between geometry and algebra. And then you ask, what is the way of looking at your K3 surface that reveals this algebraic structure? And that's exactly what we did in our paper. That's Andreas Malmendier. Uh, among his many recent papers is one called Jacobian Elliptic Fibrillations on a Special Family of K3 Services of Picard Rank 16. Andreas, want to bring somebody else into our conversation? Absolutely. Okay, cool. Well, Andreas, this is community ecologist Ed Hamill. And Ed, this is mathematical physicist Andreas Malmendier. Hey, Andreas. How are nice you going? Nice to meet you, Ed. You too, mate. How are you going? I wanted to start this conversation with an observation that I, I don't think that I would have expected to make before I was introduced to both of your work. Uh, Ed, you're sort of in the business of looking for chaos. You take what looks like an ordered system, pesticides kill mosquitoes, and then you show that when it's applied to a complex community ecology, the ripples are unexpected and probably endless. And Andreas, you're sort of in the business of looking for order. You take what looks like chaos, the unanswered questions of universal physics, and try to identify a system of order. And I guess I'm wondering what this says about you guys personally beyond your research. One of the things that I thought was really encouraging about the sort of crash course introduction to mathematical physics I just got there, so that was like in ecology, one of the things that you get picked on a fair bit for is there's no unifying theory of ecology. The answer to an awful lot of ecological questions is it depends. So when you say, how does adding a new stressor into this ecosystem affect the species? Well, it depends. It depends if it kills this species, it depends if it kills that species. We've always had this wonderful idea that, okay, physicists and mathematicians, they've got this all worked out. They've got little happy equations, everything works. I didn't realize the extent to which things might be connected and there's 12 dimensional spaces, but it's impossible to know if you poke this bit, what happens to this bit over here. So it was lovely to hear that. <laughs> and I have to say, I mean, I always 
get a little jealous if I hear, you know, like about your lab work, you are in this shed in, what was it, Costa Rica, Costa Rica. <laughs> and all of a sudden you have have this big epiphany. All I, I can say with my good friend and collaborator, Adrian Klinger, the best we have is we stand in front of the blackboard and, you know, like after a yeah. while of staring at it, you are like, oh, now I understand it. What I found really interesting about your work, the focus. I feel like to really understand what was going on, you really had to isolate the question and the important factors that played into the, the balance between predator and prey in your system. And I think the same is true for my work, even though it's, it's very different. It's that you really have to focus on the essential of what you want to investigate. Because if you want to understand everything at the same time, it's just impossible. I can only imagine how great it is for you, but for me it was immensely gratifying to really understand, even though it was this very isolated aspect of the whole system, to understand this. Mm -hmm. From what I can gather, what you're trying to do is essentially understand everything, see what unifies absolutely everything. It's this idea that, okay, I find out this bit, how does this relate to this, is one of the exciting bits that then the discovery that, okay, this explains a whole bunch of other things as well that we hadn't even thought about. Like it explains the fact that you can describe curves in n-dimensional space based on algebra. And it's like, how on earth did that happen? Like, do you often get these moments of how? <laughs> yeah, you know, when we say we do string theory to find a grand unifying theory, it's not that once you understand K3 surfaces and F-theory, it's right down the road. There are like 100 million <laughs> steps before you could actually explain what happens at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN from such a string theory. So I'm looking at a very narrow aspect, and I feel it's almost like you looking at a very specific, maybe predator-prey system under the outer influence of pesticide, and then there's this whole other picture about, you know, the environment around it. It's kind of the same for us. But I am in awe for often being pushed into seeing relations that I had never foreseen when I started the work. Mm -hmm. You get to see connections between different areas of mathematics and physics yeah. that, you know, you hadn't thought about when you started it. Maybe nobody had thought about it in, in, in the best case scenario, right? Yeah. Then you got a really great paper. <laughs> and so the synthesis of knowledge is just immense. This idea that you, you, you talk about synthesis and you can synthesize, oh, this explains all these sorts of stuff. Whereas everything, uh, well, not, I don't want to say everything, never say everything. Like, no, so a large part of what we often come up against is this idea that, okay, the moment we explain one thing, it doesn't synergize. All it does is make everything else more complicated. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, we've discovered this connection. Oh, well, that means that can also affect that, and that can affect that. Oh, and that can affect that, and that can affect that, that and on, on, and so forth. In the project we just did, we showed that, okay, a novel human stressor, so pesticides, kills off the predator, and it allows a prey to blossom. The project we'd done immediately before that was actually using a totally different system. That was on jellyfish and zooplankton and ocean acidification. And in that case, we showed that a novel anthropogenic stressor actually made it easier for jellyfish to capture their prey. 
So if someone ever says to you, what's the effect of anthropogenic stressors? Well, it depends. It depends. It depends totally on the system. We never get to the stage that you guys get to. It's like, oh, we've just shown this. Oh, and this explains all these previous things. And this explains all this. Every single thing we shows just makes it more complicated. <laughs> but I think that's the same. I mean, we don't advertise the fact too much, but <laughs> you know, with, with every piece of the puzzle you reveal, in particular in string theory, things get much more complicated. You know, for example, if you describe a novel family of K3 surfaces in one string theory, what's the first question? Well, what are the partnering or mirror geometries in the other string theories, right? I don't know. It, be, it <laughs> depends. I could say the same thing. Even though we don't have a completely unified picture, maybe in either of our fields, I do feel with every mechanism we understand, we get more comfortable really explaining what's going on in the field. So we might not have a, a theory of everything in biology, but with every mechanism, you're actually getting more comfortable looking at the field as, as a whole. And that's exactly what's happening in mathematical physics. We have so many open questions, but we learned so much already. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think it is difficult to predict. And your inability often to predict things in itself is a result. When someone asks you, oh, can we impact this particular ecosystem in a particular way? What will be the net effect? You say, well, we think it's this, but to be honest, we can't categorically state what's going to happen. And so we have to proceed with caution every single time. If you don't understand what the overall broader consequences of any novel threat that you put in are, well, we should be a lot more you know, conservative in what we actually go and do. Uh, it's important to demonstrate your own weaknesses <laughs> in some cases. <laughs> I hate to break this up, but we're just about out of time. But I, I feel like there's an interdisciplinary thing that's about to happen here. And I think it's going to happen with Andreas in a shack in Costa Rica. <laughs> I like that. I yeah, really right. Like... It's pretty basic living. But well, it's I fun. want that mosquito repellent. Oh, no, no, no. You're not even allowed Dettol and olive oil. You're not allowed anything. <laughs> Ed Hamill, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks, Matt. And Andreas Malmendier, thank you. My pleasure, Matt. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and that's where we recorded today's episode. If you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. And if you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.